The issue around here isn't that we're not resilient enough. The issue is that we're in a toxic culture. And what you've attempted to do there, you've attempted to, to I, I guess to appropriate a, a term from, from dating, you've attempted to gaslight the people there. You've attempted to tell them that something that is right in front of their eyes isn't actually happening. Hello and welcome to the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. My name is Leanne. I'm a business psychologist. My name is Al. I'm a business owner. We are here to help you simplify the science of people and create amazing workplace cultures. We are. We're also here to feel very sorry for ourselves. <laughs> we, um, you might notice this pod is a little bit late. Um, it's because we both came out down with something last week and we think it was COVID. Mm-hmm. We've been what? We've been clean for four years. <laughs> <laughs> We've never had it. We've, We've never, never had, had it. it. Um, and uh, and it finally caught up with us. And it is a bastard, isn't it? Yeah, it really horrible. is. I'm sure if you're listening to this, you probably have had it multiple times. You're going, shut up, Alan Leanne. Get on <laughs> with it. But no, it just knocked us on our collective asses. But like a decent pint of Guinness, all good things come to those who wait. Genuine question, Al. Go ahead. When was the last time you experienced decent, not even like exceptional, just decent customer service? Oh, long time ago. I mean, there's no secret formula for it. Yet, what we do know is that most companies seem to be pretty bad at it. But not you, my friend, not you, listener. Oh, no, you can create an amazing customer service experience when you use the brand new service hub from HubSpot. Yep, this all-new service hub from HubSpot brings customer service and support together in one simple but powerful platform so you can deliver the best experience possible. And of course, it's powered by AI, not Al, AI, meaning your team can automate those tedious tickets from people who've clearly not read your frequently asked questions. Pain in the backside, aren't they? Oh, and by the way, organizations using HubSpot Service Hub are resolving tickets 13 times faster, helping them to close 42% more tickets per day. That means increasing retention by more than 80%. Thank you, people at HubSpot who, who did the maths on that one, because I wouldn't be able to. I love a bit of data. Did you also know, Al, that it consolidates your entire internal knowledge base into one place? So no matter who is working on support, they'll have the answers at their fingertips. I did know that because I wrote that for you. Well, there you have it. Stand out from the crowd and migrate to HubSpot Service Hub today. Visit HubSpot.com slash service and learn how this all-new solution can help you deliver for your customers. Today, we have an amazing guest who's also a personal hero of both of ours. Yes, we have got the incredible, the amazing Bruce Daisley on the podcast. Very, very excited. Bruce, now if you haven't heard of Bruce, Bruce is one of the UK's most influential voices on fixing work. He has been published in the Washington Post, Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal and The Guardian. His first book, The Joy of Work, was a Sunday Times number one bestseller and is now translated into 18 international editions. His second book, Fortitude, was described as the best business book of 2022 by the Financial Times. As impressively, previously Bruce spent over a decade running Twitter and YouTube for Europe, leaving Twitter as its most senior leader outside of the US. Yes, Leanne interviewed Bruce um, a couple of weeks ago and the original interview was almost an hour long, so it's been kind of tough to cut it down and fit it to this episode, but 
Leanne and Bruce talked about resilience and how, as a concept, we might be getting quite a bit of it wrong. Now, rather than the answer to well-being at work being resilience, Bruce and Leanne discuss how the emphasis on building individual resilience could be considered as gaslighting. They also talked about how the changes in the workplace have highlighted the importance of resilience, why we're happier when we're in teams, whether we should be laughing at work, and why a receptionist dressed as a Pringle tube saved a company's culture. <laughs> yes, we will. Yes, we will. Oh, that's not true. Yes, we did. And you'll also learn what the world's leading culture doctor does when she is called into companies like Uber to fix their workplace culture. Shall we go and meet our guest? Hi, I'm Bruce Daisley. For a long time, I did technology jobs. I worked at companies like Google, at Twitter, when it was Twitter. And uh, I worked a place like that. Along the way, I developed a fascination with how teams work and and just how to have fun at work, how how to create good cultures. And I started doing the podcasts on those things that has led to me publishing a couple of books that have become bestsellers, one called The Joy of Work and one called Fortitude. And so now I spend my time helping companies think about themes of workplace culture and how to make work more enjoyable. Bruce and I spoke at length about resilience, a word we hear a lot, a lot about, especially in relation to workplace culture and well-being. In fact, maybe it's being used a little bit too frequently. So let's start at the beginning with a definition. The American Psychological Association defines resilience as the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, or even significant sources of stress. Well, that all sounds a lot sciencey to me. Um, can you tell me what you actually mean? Yes, in the words, and I'll put it in terms you'll understand really, really well, Al. Mm-hmm. Chumbawamba. Oh, yeah. In the words of Chumbawamba, <laughs> I get knocked down, but I go up again. You ain't ever going to keep me down. Give me a lager drink. Give me a whiskey drink. <laughs> Give me a cider drink. <laughs> There's going to be a whole generation of, of, of people listening to this who go, I have no idea what you're talking about. What is a Chumbawamba? <laughs> Google it. it yeah. Sounds rude, actually. It does. I gave her a Chumbawamba. <laughs> Not sure you can do that in this day and age. She'll get cancelled. <laughs> but yes, resilience, it's, it's our ability to bounce back when things go wrong. There's loads of research, psychological research, that suggests that the resources and skills associated with resilience can be cultivated and practiced. Think back to episodes with Dr. Audrey and Sean Tolram on managing stress. But the issue is, in terms of workplace psychology, resilience has firmly been deemed the responsibility of the individual. If work is tough, toughen up. The tougher you are, the more successful you are, right? Well, Bruce wasn't so sure. And his book, Fortitude, is all about dispelling the myths around resilience and revealing the truth about building inner strength. And this is where the conversation started. Because we asked Bruce, what's your beef with resilience? I've got huge issues with it. And and for, for a number of reasons, really. Firstly, I think... At its heart, the idea of resilience is superficially really appealing, but the expectation of it is actually something close to victim blaming. And so the the expectation of resilience, and you know, you witness this all the time. You witness my friend works in a hospital in North London. She said in the middle of the pandemic, you know, overwhelming, we, we stood and cheered for these people and then denied them a pay increase. But the um, the these people were working sort of relentless hours and someone pinned a notice uh, on the notice board saying resilience webinar on Thursday. And she was like, 
The issue around here isn't that we're not resilient enough. The issue is that we're in a toxic culture. And what you've attempted to do there, you've attempted to, to I, I guess, to appropriate a, a term from, from dating, you've attempted to gaslight the people there. You've attempted to tell them that something that is right in front of their eyes isn't actually happening. And so, you know, the concept of resilience is already a, a cautious one. So when firms say, you know, when they say we need to introduce some resilience training, the, the first thing you might wonder is, why do you need resilience training? What have you overseen? Why is your culture so toxic that you've got people who need resilience training? Okay, question number one. Second thing is, um, resilience is a bit like sort of um, anti-aging creams in the sense that the demand for anti-aging creams is limitless. And yet there's no single cream that ever stops people aging. There isn't one. There isn't a single cream where people don't look a year older or they don't look a little bit older. Um, so there's, but there's no shortage of them. You know, you, you find yourself wandering around uh, beauticians or, or, you know, the, the parts of stores that sell these things. There's no shortage of them. And resilience is a bit like that. There's no shortage of people who will sell you resilience courses. And look, the fascinating thing about that is that, Okay, let's see if they work because, you know, the biggest customer of resilience courses in the world is the U.S. Army. It spent somewhere close to a billion dollars training combat soldiers to be resilient. And the great thing about something like that, when you spent that amount of money, is that other people come along and say, oh, like, well, if you've done all the work and you've done all the in, uh, sort of investment, let's implement that. Let's Let's measure that. And they've come along and said, oh, that resilience course that the US military has spent a million, a billion dollars implementing has had zero impact. Soldiers are not any more resilient. Right, okay. So you've got this interesting thing. The very idea of it is to some extent victim blaming, but look, it's desirable. The ability to bounce back, to, to re-energize, it's desirable. We all want to do it, but you know, qu question the expectation of it. So what we're saying is that resilience training is just a complete waste of time. We look for resilience in the wrong place. We've looked for resilience. It's this individual trait, this almost like this switch that some of us have of, or some of us don't have. Some of this, um, a, a capacity that we've got to to re-energize on demand. And in truth, when we witness resilience, it actually has the characteristics of something collective rather than individual. You, you know, I, I mentioned combat soldiers, and these are real conundrum at the heart of the situation of combat soldiers in the sense that combat soldiers who are in service often report feeling um, supported, emboldened, strengthened by the people around them. And actually, the thing that really decimates their their well-being is the fact that they're separated from their tribe. Resilience is the strength we draw from each other. What you what you witness, combat soldiers are a perfect example of it. Combat soldiers often describe it's the moment where they don't have people who understand them. They don't have people who have gone through the same. When when they find themselves trying to relate to people who've never had to witness the things that they've witnessed, that's when they're resilience suffers you know so i think whether we witness situation like ukraine where people have demonstrated this incredible capacity to deal with just horrible hardship um resi resilience is the strength we draw from each other you, you don't see examples where some people in ukraine say i can't cope with this 
and others say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm living my best life. Actually, it's the capacity for us to draw strength from the community around us that seems to be the defining aspect of resilience. And, and I think, you know, for me, that's the most intriguing enigma about the whole thing that we it's it's so heavily desired but we often look for it in the wrong place the key difference between the workplace in 2024 and the workplace say in 1984 is that we're much more likely to be connected to work outside of working hours it is difficult to ignore an email from an important client outside of work hours when a notification pops up on your phone. Managers can and do abuse the always-on messaging platforms like Slack to get instant answers, whereas 20 years ago, they'd have to wait until Monday. The opportunity to rest and recover from work is a really important factor in building resilience. And this might be one of the reasons why resilience is at an all-time low and burnout is at an all-time high. As Bruce explains, it's not as easy as saying, oh, the kids just can't cope these days. Anyone who can't recognise that the world of work has fundamentally changed in the last 20 years, then there's some really stark data to prove that. The average working day has gone up by more than two hours a day in the last 15 years. In fact, the evidence suggests that um, that the the availability we give to our job the sort of the the cognitive availability we give to our job has gone up to around 65 70 hours a week in most jobs which just means that we're thinking about work we're we're effectively in a work mindset for far more than we ever were before it's no wonder then that yes if we compare there didn't used to be resilience training courses well of course there didn't used to be the system systematic burnout that we're witnessing now that we were witnessing uh, three out of every four people in the UK say that say they've experienced an episode of burnout in the last 12 months now if we were to rewind the clock maybe to the millennium or whenever this uh, glory era of work was uh, almost certainly people didn't have the demands of work that we're witnessing now so of course no doubt um there's uh, been a massive increase in the amount of resilience training and the amount, amount of demand for these things a massive increase in the amount of burnout that we're witnessing but the world is fundamentally a different place now than it was 20 30 40 years ago i think a lot of senior leaders we're talking to seem to think that if we could only get back to how things were pre-pandemic everything is going to be okay which is probably the drive to bring people back to the office to get things back to normality. But Bruce points out that this is not actually the case and it won't work. Sometimes that we find ourselves in a situation where people think, well, we need to get back to when work was functioning again. There was a survey that came out in October this year by KPMG that said that two thirds of chief execs believe that by 2028, we'll be back at a five day office, that we'll be working in the office five days a week. Two thirds of chief execs believe that. Why? Because they believe in that version that the time before the pandemic was when work was working. Well, I guarantee if you and I were sitting down and having this discussion in 2019, we were talking about burnout. We were talking about how people were overloaded, how people couldn't cope with work. So, you know, the idea that we get, we, we rose tint what 2019, 2018 looked like is an unfortunate consequence of where we're in right now, where people end up thinking about the good old days. And we, we all do it in all manner of our life. Um, I think the, the most critical thing is that it's with those discussions of burnout, these discussions about resilience, why can't the kids cope? In my day, we could cope, of course, comparing two different scenarios. Especially the moment of work we're in right now, we, we've got this 
interesting conundrum where you need to believe two things at once. You can um, you need to recognize that 90 percent of people believe that flexible working is a good thing and they don't want to go back to the way they were working before. And that two thirds of chief execs believe that we should be back in the office. Right. OK. Two things at once. So you've got these bosses wanting people together. And, you know, I guess to some extent, part of the finding of the book is that resilience and strength is collective. And so from that, you might say, well, okay, yeah, that's it. That's the mandate to get back to the office. But I think, you know, you need to bear in mind that that desire to preserve the benefits of now. So I think the lesson from leaders is thinking, how do I create a sense of cohesion, a sense of strength that will be the basis of our team resilience? How do I create that in a different way? And so, you know, I've seen really lovely things from people saying the job of leaders right now is to be entrepreneurial about building connection, about trying to make a way for for teams to feel connected to each other. And that's the job of a leader right now. And uh, I think it's a a really interesting challenge. And I think really at the heart of it, even though the book's about resilience, really it's it speaks to team dynamics and, and groups and making us all feel more connected. And as Bruce alluded to earlier in the NHS, there's a massive problem with the label resilient. If the general public think of a group of people as resilient, it almost gives them permission to not have to be concerned about them. Kind of like that happy, chirpy fella at work. You know, he takes everything in his stride, right? Nobody worries about that guy when he takes a week off. They'll assume he's resilient. He's cool. He's fine. They don't think to check up on him. But the stats show that this is exactly the kind of person we should be most worried about. My partner's Lebanese and they, um, I, I adore Lebanon. I adore the Lebanese people, really lovely people. And, uh, but, you know, the one thing that's often directed at them is that they have a lot of bad luck, a lot of misfortune. And, you know, I was in Beirut where there was this, there was this almighty explosion biggest explosion in peacetime in any city in the world. If, if anyone sort of, if you ever put it into YouTube, uh, Beirut, I think the first thing that comes up as autocorrect is explosion. And it's, mamma mia, it's like a, a sight to behold. The whole city is enveloped in this sort of, um, this fast expanding mushroom cloud. It's uh, it's terrifying to look at. And But when we were there, all the new news coverage when the explosion happened was, well, you know, the Lebanese people will be all right because they're really resilient. Well, if we know anything, Lebanese people are resilient. Let me tell you, on the ground, they weren't thinking that. They were seeing resilient as this label that other people were giving them, kind of, so they didn't have to help. You know, it was was a bit like, well, you're resilient. You'll pick yourself up. I'll see you later. Good luck with that. I saw a tweet and someone said, resilience, the, the word resilience is a demand for silence. Right. That's really interesting. Right. Because what you're saying is be resilient. Like it's a bit like there, there, there. You'll be all right. And effectively, you're telling someone to demonstrate that they can bounce back from something rather than reaching out and offering them support, you know, rather than sort of trying to share their discomfort from them. So I I found it really interesting more than anything, you know, the, the sort of what you might consider then a distraction of of the criticism of the word. I, I felt it was a bit overused. We were using it for everything. You know, if you put on the, the morning radio, if you listen to news radio, you'll hear resilience at four times every hour. And so I was just intrigued because I was like, okay, so you've got all these people doing resilience courses. Schools around the world do 
resilience programs. And the really interesting thing about that is it's based really on the same psychology as the army stuff. And when people have said, oh, these resilience programs we're putting kids through, are they working? Uh, no, they have no impact whatsoever. So we've got this really interesting thing. We're spending loads of time trying to train this really desirable trait, this really desirable property. It's not working. I was like, okay, well, let's go back to first principles. Is there anything that we can do that really tries to understand our capacity to bounce back? And is there any way that we can achieve that? Listen to any commentator speaking on any sport and you'll likely hear the word resilience every 10 minutes. And the temptation is to think of this resilience as a kind of muscle that we've trained. But Bruce's research uncovered that this is more likely to be a scar tissue than muscle. When there are big resilience stories, we often reach for sports stars or or famous people because they're just the the people whose story the, the people whose biography we get to hear and sports stars uh, their stories are, are replete with examples of people who overcome adversity and it often goes to serve resilience narratives so you know mo farah might spring to mind right now you know double won the double double he won two gold medals medals at two successive olympic games and you know what you might say is oh wow look at mo farah's story he actually was a refugee in fact, you know, what we discovered that uh, Mo Farah was actually a victim of human trafficking. So uh, um, his story has this trauma at the heart of it. And I became fixated with that because what you discover is that um, actually it's a, it's a characteristic. A lot of Olympians have got um, a history of trauma. And what you discover is that it serves sort of via, um, but via, destroying their own identity really the, the way that we experience trauma is we experience it as shame quite often which is heartbreaking because you know something bad has happened to you and the way that we internalize it is we often feel like it's about us it's, it's about we've got a sort of a, a um a sort of damaged identity from it re, re, it's heartbreaking, but that's the, the way that broadly trauma is experienced. Anyway, one of the things that I was really interested to discover is that not only is there a high instance of trauma amongst athletes and what you often discover is they effectively, trauma is normally correlated with addiction and with um, self-adapted behavior. So it's more likely to be a common, uh, associated with drinking. It's more likely to be associated with drug taking. Um you know, you're four times more likely to uh, to have uh, alcohol and addiction problems if you've experienced high levels of trauma. Um, almost without exception, uh, tr- uh, addiction is has an episode of trauma that has has spawned it. But what I was really struck by was the uh, I chatted to someone who looked at performance enhancing drugs, so people who took performance enhancing drugs, and he said to me. Um, People who take performance-enhancing drugs have got um, if they've got about a, a nine times higher likelihood to take performance-enhancing drugs if they've been um, if they've had episode of sexual abuse, and uh, if they've had physical abuse, it's about uh, it's about eight times higher. Uh, but those are multiplicative, um, meaning that if you've had both then you multiply that likelihood. And anyway, so you end up with these situations where I think sometimes we can find ourselves when we hear the story of a ashamed athlete thinking, why would anyone take performance-enhancing drugs? And what you often discover is right at the heart of it is an episode of, of someone destroying their sense of identity, someone 
someone who is broken and their sporting performance was is their redemption arc. So, look, you know, I've, I, I called this act of taking you on there, but I, I was really blown away by that. The, the guy who told me that, I was like, um, like, wow, for the first time, you could understand that when you see these people who've done these episodes of cheating, they've done it from a perspective that they have a really so low self-worth. They, they're broken people, really. And for the first time, you actually can empathize. You know, Lance Armstrong, famous uh, cyclist, had episodes of, of, of abuse in his childhood. Um, I, I, I think uh, episodes of shame. Um, there was also... Uh, there was also another Tour de France cyclist who was abused as a child. There's, there's lots of these biographies that it's only in hindsight you can see, wow, this is why they did these things. So this brings back the age-old question. Without adversity, do we see greatness? Most super entrepreneurs have had traumatic childhoods. Most super musicians have had horrible experiences. And as Bruce discovered, most high-performing sports people have built their resilience because they had trauma. And there is a psychological principle called post-traumatic growth. It was researched by a psychologist called Richard Tedeschi. The basic premise is that negative experiences can spur positive change, including personal strengths, improved relationships, or a greater appreciation for life. It is a cliche anecdote, but you know, it's true that we hear people who have experienced a near-death experience or even a job loss will often cite this trauma as the turning point of a transformation in their lives. The trouble is this view can romanticize trauma, especially when we start to view trauma through the lens of these super performers or super elite athletes. This isn't the norm. This super performance, these super athletes are outliers. And by only acknowledging post-traumatic growth, we're not acknowledging the adverse effects of trauma that even these people can experience. It can include things like enormous, enormous personal sacrifices to live that life and to, to have that success. An almost pathological need to win and huge challenges with their identity on retirement. We've spoken before about the significant mental health challenges that people in the sports industry can experience when their sporting career ends. This narrow and hugely simplified viewpoint also excludes the experiences of the majority. Trauma is much more likely to result in maladaptive coping mechanisms. There is a mountain of research that links traumatic experience in childhood with addictive behaviours in adulthood. As Bruce explains in his book, trauma and setback are not simple triggers for achievement. Now, Al, I know what your next question is going to be. What's the differentiating factor? What turns trauma into success rather than addiction? Well, the answer isn't simple. I'm sorry. I know it's that psychologist answer, but it really does depend. It depends on the nature and prevalence of the trauma. It depends on the age at which the person was when they experienced that trauma. It can depend on personality, how optimistic or pessimistic we are. It can depend on our perceived locus of, of control. That's how much we believe that we have control over our lives compared to external forces or events. And as Bruce explains, it can also depend on the relationships we have in our lives. It can depend on the communities we belong to. The, the notion that we, we draw strength from groups is, you know, even though it's really well known, um, we don't really explore for it. And, you know, in the medical community, for example, if you're hospitalised for anything from depression to heart illness to whatever it is, the best predictor of how you will be in two years and five years 
is how many social groups you report feeling part of. Why on earth is that relevant? Well, from doctors and physicians' point of view, it's, it's kind of not. So they don't ask about it. They don't say, are you part of a social group? Do you do any group activities? Do you have any activities you feel part of? They don't ask it. And yet, it's far more predictive of how you be, you'll be than if you drink, if you exercise, if you smoke. In fact, you know, if you, if you have friends that you see every day, it on average increases your lifespan by 15 years. It's like this remarkable, extraordinary impact on longevity. Um, and so I guess, you know, at the heart of it, we, we kind of overlook these things. And they, they really go to the heart of strong organizations as well. You know, normally, I, I heard this brilliant thing. I attended a session where different companies were talking about culture. And a big retail store that, you know, probably one of the most famous retail stores in the UK. And uh, somebody who worked there, she said, we did some analysis and we found an interesting correlation. The, st <coughs> the stores that used all of their, their staff entertaining budgets had much better culture than the ones who didn't. I mean, it's like such a silly, self-evident thing. But the ones who arranged um, staff baseball in the softball in the park or the, the ones who arranged a sort of a staff quiz night or the ones who the ones who did those things had much better culture than the ones who didn't and what you broadly discover is that good culture generally has socialization it generally has social connection at the heart of it now the interesting lesson for all of us right now is that you know the world has changed a bit a lot of people have since covid have got much longer commutes they've moved out they staying on a going to the pub after work, you know, actually typically only half of the office have ever enjoyed that. And they kind of didn't go, but we didn't notice them. Everyone else who was having so much fun there didn't notice that, you know, the ones with care responsibilities weren't there. The ones with long commutes, the ones who didn't drink weren't there. Um, so, so I guess the challenge increasingly for leaders is, is recognizing socialization plays a big part of stronger culture. Stronger culture generally translates into better results, better performance, but we maybe don't want to do all of those things in outside of work hours. And so the interesting challenge for leaders is, okay, how do we create social connection inside work hours? Now that might be team lunches. It might be, you know, Team bake sales, where everyone brings something in, costs zero money, people bring things in, you'll sit and eat something together. Or I've, I've seen companies that do team food, mar um, world food events, and everyone from different countries brings the food their grandmother used to make them. Or everyone brings, you know, the food that they, they most love cooking at home. And so you've got like this Polish food, you've got this Indian food, you've got these, these like Nigerian dishes, like, and you've just got this incredible collection of, of people doing things. I am quickly interrupting this phenomenal podcast to recommend another phenomenal podcast, Nudge. We love Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, a true gent. It is, of course, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. But that is not the only reason we're recommending it, is it, Al? No, it's not. No, we've recommended it to lots of people. If you look at any of our YouTube comments, it won't take you long, there's about 20 of them, <laughs> then you'll see that we recommend Phil uh, to anyone who likes our pod. Well, on Nudge, you're going to learn simple evidence-backed tips. It's going to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, and grow a business. 
Oh, and it's the UK's fastest growing business podcast. For now. For now, Phil, we're coming for you, buddy. <laughs> if you loved hearing Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy on our show back in episode 83, then Phil's latest episode has Rory on again talking about McDonald's, smoking, and why the pension system is broken. I suppose we should say that actually Rory's been on a couple of times on to nudge. It's not that uh, Phil's seen what we've done and gone, I'll have Rory. So I think it's important yeah, for no, us to Yeah, no, we say copied. That. We copied Phil. Anyway, listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. Does this mean you have to spend all your time with your colleagues? Or does it mean that face-to-face, in-office working with the, is the secret to resilience? Well, of course not. In fact, Bruce has found there's a specific percentage of time with colleagues that is actually the sweet spot. The one thing we know is that there's huge communities that never meet each other online, whether they are music fandoms or you know, fandoms of TV shows or, you know, huge communities that never meet each other or they might meet each other once every two years at a gig or at a comic conference. And and so, you know, we don't need to be with each other every day to, to forge connection. I think the, um, the thing that we might think, though, is we might think, how do we sustain those things? People who've looked into this have said, in terms of the office, Spending between 25% and 50% of our time together seems to have an impact on making culture more cohesive. So, you know, any more than that, it doesn't necessarily have a huge impact. The other thing that's of interest as well is that um, what you often find is that people get really frustrated. If they've made a journey in, I was with one organisation a couple of months ago, and they said the average commute in our team is two hours each way. People have moved to Southampton, they've moved to York, they've moved to, you know, they're commuting into London and they'll do it one day a week happily, two days a week, fine. But, you know, it's a long commute. They don't want to be doing that every day. Now, you can force them in, but if they come all the way in and they spend the day on Zoom calls, they will not forgive you. If they come in and they spend all day on Teams with people who are at home, they'll think, what was the point of that? You know, like I'm being, uh, I've chatted to someone yesterday and uh, he said a member of his team, 23 year old, his average commute when he comes in is 75 pounds and his his peak time commute is 75 pounds. His off peak commute is 22 or something. So he's like, I love coming in. I love being in the office. If there's any chance I can do it off peak, it makes my life just so much less impoverished. You know, like if I'm getting... 75 pound train i've got to feel like that extra hour in the office was worth it and you know actually if you're getting in and people are just chatting having a coffee it's like please don't punish me for being late when it's got a 50 pound difference to me and i think you know understanding those things are really critical for where we are in work right now and the second part of work socialization is to have fun bruce has a great story about a receptionist who had enough of the culture and did something about it I've always been relatively fortunate that most of the jobs I had, I enjoyed. Um, and so, you know, I would always say to myself, it had been a good day if I'd laughed 10 times that day. And, you know, it'd been a, and so like that's it. If I went home that day and I was like, man, that was a funny day. That was, that was the defining thing. If I was like getting on the public transport home, saying to myself, that was a funny day today. That was, that was all that mattered to me really interesting and I was like oh, does that correlate with good culture though he's like you know to some extent I had one someone once tell me um don't be seen laughing around here you know we weren't 
doing very well as a business. If the big boss walks past, don't be seen laughing. It's like, oh, really? You know how to laugh when things are bad? It's interesting because if you chat to people who do really bad jobs, like firefighters or soldiers, they laugh all the time. But, um, the, you know, it's like, okay, so like, this is really interesting that people will help diagnose what good culture looks like. Anyway, I was just really intrigued with that. What does good culture look like? If people laugh more, is that better for culture? Will we get better results if people laugh more? Or is, is my own instinct a bad one? And I just became obsessed with that. And, you know, actually, I tell you, I, I don't know uh, the, the sort of jobs you've done, but I've done a lot of bar jobs and restaurant jobs. And there's, there's something when you start a new shift at a bar, and you get a bit of a vibe when you turn up and you ask if they've got any jobs and then you find out, then you start there. When you start a new shift at a job, a job, you know within the first shift whether this is going to be a horrible place to work or whether this, and you're still looking, you get carrying looking, or whether this might be a good place. Okay, you go home at the end of the first shift. That was good, actually. I like those people. Really intriguing. But obviously that has got to have an impact on customer service. If everyone in a place hates each other or hates the boss, of course, you know, it's going to have an impact on whether you're good to customers. And so, you know, for me, I was just like really interested in those dynamics, in interested in the dynamics of whether, uh, how those things work together. So, yeah, I've, I've always just had a, as a participant in teams, I've just always had a curiosity of how we can make teams better. I spoke to one organization. They said, the receptionist changed the culture here. I was like, okay, I'm intrigued. Tell me more. They said the receptionist was a one of those actors who sort of worked for a bit, then came back and then did some acting, then came back, did a season of pantomime, came back. And she said, this is the worst place I've ever worked. I guess you can say that when you're the temp. And uh, and she said, no one talks to each other. There's no connection. Don't, no one even seems to like each other, really. Anyway, she took it into her own hand. She went out, she bought some bags of kettle chips and Pringles. She laid them all out on paper plates. And she said, back to the point I made before, she said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's the best time of the week, 4.30 on Thursday. It's crisp Thursday. <laughs> and, you know, people came up and they had like a little stack of Pringles. and They stood around going, what's this? Next week, she did it again. Next week, she did it again. She was dressed up on the third week. She was dressed up as a Pringles tube. And uh, anyway, it became like a little ritual. People would say, let's not have a meeting. Are you going to be at Crisp Thursday? I've just got two things to ask you. You know, oh, occasionally someone turned up with cake. Someone turned up with Prosecco. Anyway, it became the in-work moment where they all stopped doing stuff for 15 minutes to connect or for half an hour to connect with each other. And I guess the spirit of that, the spirit of that crisp Thursday is how leaders need to be a bit more entrepreneurial with connection. It's realizing that generally, you know, we're engaged with our job when we've got a friend at work. And it's one of the fundamental details about work culture that we often forget. So the more that we can make build connections, we make people feel like we're all in it together, that, you know, we can draw strength from each other. All of these things seem to be in service of better culture, really. They say that laughter is the best medicine. Bruce has experienced firsthand that laughing, joking and banter in the workplace is good for culture, so long as you're not laughing at somebody else's expense. If the sort of gags you are making are at the expense of someone's identity, I suspect it was never as funny as you thought it was in the first place. You know, if you would need to challenge who someone is and what they're about to get a laugh, 
I don't think that was probably ever as funny as you think it was. Um, and aside from that, I think there's a billion things that we can laugh about and joke about. So, you know, to my mind, if someone's gender or ethnicity or sexuality is the thing that you thought was banter, you know, probably time has has moved on for that. But apart from that, still a billion things you can laugh about. The great thing is, there's a wonderful book I'd recommend by uh, two women uh, who teach at Stanford, a book called Humor Seriously. And, and one of the things they wrote was like, you know, we much prefer managers who laugh. We much prefer being in an environment which is filled with laughter. And here's how you laugh more. You try and laugh more. You find moments in meetings where there's five minutes at the end of a meeting where you make a you know, you share funny things that have happened this week. You, fa- you share funny things that have happened and and you just set yourself up for opportunities to laugh more. In fact, you know, the one thing, the, the only thing I'll say is that the, my only strength in life is that I'm quite generous with my laughter. I love laughing at stuff. Um, and what you find is that when you laugh at stuff, other people also enjoy laughing. You know, generally we only laugh with people we like, which is the interesting um, element of psychology. So I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't say if you're open-hearted, I wouldn't say that there's any reason to believe that there's less opportunity for laughter. What I will say is that we do laugh less on Zoom. And so, you know, we've got to rebuild the times that we are around each other, rebuild those relationships, make sure we spend our face-to-face time laughing. So we've covered so much more than resilience here. We've talked about how resilience can often be a way to move blame from bad management, how groups of people are more resilient than individuals, how the change in workplace is massively affecting resilience. Yeah, we've talked about how socialization at work is a good thing and how creating connections and having fun is one of the fundamentals of resilience and great coaches. But I asked Bruce if there was just one thing that companies should be doing, what might it be? He describes a woman called Frances, who's a person companies call when they have a culture problem and what she does when she first walks through the door. And she goes into those companies when you hear like Uber's got a culture problem or WeWork's got a culture problem or um, there's another one called Riot Games that had a really bad sort of sexism and bullying and she was she's the person they call. So I was like, man, what, what do you do? You walk in, they've called you, you know, they, for, wouldn't like the fear be running through you? It's like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Because they're gonna, they want answers here. They, you know, I can't not do anything, and so I've chatted to her twice. And I'm always like, "What do you do? What's the first thing you do?" Number one thing she does: train managers. That's what she does. She trains managers. That's really interesting. Like you know, of course, there's quick fixes. You know, we change that policy, we change that. That's maybe not well advised. Then she trains managers. Wow. <laughs> Okay, that's so interesting. If you do one thing, I know I've said it before, but how cool is it to hear somebody who's probably got a lot more credibility than they say it? It's good, isn't it? Yeah, sorry, you're talking to me. Yeah. (laughs) I thought thought you were talking to the audience. I'm talking to them too. Yes, it is. Yeah, I mean, honestly, when this penny drops out, we're going to be millionaires. Our manager training sales are going to go through the roof. Through the roof. (laughs) I'm clearly not, I'm not prepared for this back and forth. I've got a mouthful of water. Yes, we will be millionaires. Yes, you are right. You're yeah. always right. All hail, all, all hail great, Leanne. Carry on. No, all joking aside, it is, it is really important. Great management links to every aspect of organisational life, including resilience. Bruce's book shows that resilience, or rather fortitude, is built by 
feeling in close synchrony to those around us. The sense of community is extraordinarily influential for how well we can recover from challenges and setbacks. And who has the biggest impact on this sense of community in the workplace? The manager. You know, um, you know my big fat Greek wedding where the dad goes, give me a word, any word, and I will show the the origin of that word is Greek. Mm. Well, give me an organizational problem, any any organizational problem, and I will show you that the origin of that problem is the manager. Yep, I believe that. I do believe that. <laughs> it's quite simple. Train your managers, grow your business, save the world. Oh, fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. I love that. <laughs> so if you want to find out a bit more about Bruce, here's where you can go. I've got a website, brucedaisley.com or eatsleepworkrepeat.com. It's got a lot of the stuff for the podcast on it. And you can take a look. My newsletter and everything is on there. So Bruce has well and truly schooled us on the idea of resilience. It's not some fluffy buzzword and neither is it just a half day course on the training calendar. Exactly. Bruce explained that leaders fall in the trap sometimes of thinking resilience is down to the individual and therefore they are the ones to blame. But in actual fact, by creating meaningful work, allowing for flexible working and encouraging collaboration and socialization will enable you to build the foundations of an organization where resilience levels are increasing and like leanne always says when people have a very clear reason for why they're doing their job a clear idea of what their exact role is in the organization and the resources they need to do it you're most of the way there when you add on some great relationships like bruce has been talking about and frequent recognition of your efforts you've absolutely nailed it Incidentally, and there's a reason why I put the emphasis on all those all those words beginning with R, this is the main part of our proprietary modern model called the RX7, which is the seven foundations of an amazing workplace culture. And they all start with the letter R, hence R times seven, RX7. Do you get it? Maybe not. I get it. <laughs> you can find out more about the RX7 <laughs> in the show notes. As we've said a few times, it is currently in private uh, for private clients only, but if you qualify it, then we'd be very happy to talk to you about using it. So before we do say goodbye, let's just find out a bit more about Bruce's amazing podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, and why you should be adding it to your queue today. The, the, the podcast was formed by my own desire to make work better. It was, you know, um, I mentioned I worked at Twitter and uh, tech firm culture isn't always the best. And there was certainly a time we'd been forced to do a round of job cuts uh, we'd, I think we'd done another round of job cuts and the, the culture, which had been this magical thing, it really sort of had been adored by the people there. Um, people said, you know, this is the best place I've ever worked. And then the culture just didn't bounce back. And so I, I was like, oh, okay, well, what can I do to fix this? And just, I started doing a podcast, which was kind of my own self-education. It was like, it was like I'd see a fascinating article, I'd contact the person who wrote it, I'd interview them. Um, about six years ago now, so like bit sort of pre any sort of boom in podcasts. Along the way, it became number one business podcast. So it way exceeded my expectations. And as a result of that, it sort of allowed me to go on and do a couple of books and I do a newsletter about workplace culture that's, that came from it. Yeah, so it's, it's really for anyone who is ignited with the question of how do I make work better? And, you know, that might be for their team. It might be for their whole organization. It might be just, you know, a really uh, for their department, whatever it is, someone who's thinking, how can I use the research that's out there to make my, the, the job of me and my team better? Thank you to Bruce for being an incredible 
guest. It really was one of my most favorite conversations. Definitely pick up his book, Fortitude. We will leave a link in the show notes. I actually listened to the audio book version because I love Bruce's voice and his podcast. Um, and it's brilliant. So yeah, if you're, if you're looking for another medium to, to consume your content, highly recommend um, the audio book of Fortitude. It's very, very good. Yep, all the links are in the show notes. Definitely go and go and tell Bruce that you enjoyed listening to him on our pod because I think it'll make his day. He's such a down-to-earth and really, really nice guy. Um, so look out for the next couple of weeks. We've got well, we've got amazing guests for the rest of the year and the rest of time, obviously. <laughs> the we, rest of time. We have got some amazing people coming up. I think last week I mucked up because I said it was going to be uh, Dr. Claire Hughes from Mind this week, when actual fact it was Bruce. So it's going to be Dr. Claire Hughes from Mind next week. And then I think we have uh, John Amici, Rory Sutherland. We've got Isabel Berwick. Uh, we've got... Uh, the angry professor he's going to be amazing the anger professor anger professor very slight <laughs> difference very different meaning <laughs> different people with a very different look outlook on life and and work um and so many other guests coming up for you so if you haven't clicked that subscribe button then smash that subscribe button that's what they say don't they all these kids online smash this no i don't know what they say ring that bell <laughs> we're gonna go now bye 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 If you do one thing, if you do one thing, if you do one thing. At this point, I'm like, I know. When I asked my mother, what would I be? Was it that one then? Will I be resilient? This is what Bruce said to me. Okay, Sarah, Sarah. You have a beautiful voice. It's not what you said in the preview. I think you call him musically challenged the last time you heard me singing. <laughs> to be fair, you have a very unique tone. <laughs> just rewind that bit. Get it. Well, kids, well, kids get that joke. What? Rewind? rewind. Probably not. I'm so redundant.